Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. We've got a little bit different feel of an episode today. Usually we talk to early stage founders or investors, but because tomorrow you're gonna have the chance to change the history of cannabis, we have a cannabis policy expert. Alex is one of the most informed people I know on the topic. We're gonna get into the nitty gritty of 64 and what it means for you as a consumer or a business owner, what regulations do to growers. It's fascinating stuff. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David, your host as always. Today we got a little bit different of an episode. Most times we focus on founders and early stage investors, all that kind of early stage ecosystem. But the time has come for California to decide whether we're going to fully legalize adult use uh, cannabis. Prop 64 AUMA is on the ballot November 8th. And we're gonna kind of get into some of the nitty gritty. So we have senior regulatory analysts at the law office of Robert Raich, Rage? I Rage, said that. Right. Rage, yeah. Rage. Uh, Alex Zavel. Thanks for being here, man. Yep. Great to do the conversation. Absolutely, my pleasure. My first question is, what is a senior regulatory analyst? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a, a title that we landed on, um, primarily reflecting the fact that I, I'm not an attorney myself. So, you know, I, I work at a law firm, um, and so, you know, I, I can't provide formal legal advice as an attorney. However, I've been working here for about six years, uh, and a lot of my work recently in the last couple of years has really focused on the policies that you know the state is looking at adopting and implementing as well as what local governments look at and really all that centers around regulation uh, and a lot of my role is to analyze that and also sort of contribute to the dialogue around it so that's kind of what we settled on and it's been my title now for a little over a year um, having done paralegal work before that primarily it's a cool title <laughs> I like it what does that mean like day to day you know what, what's your day look like you know, it really depends. There's actually not really a standard day, I'd say. Um, you know, it can include things like, you know, going to sort of far-flung parts of the state to uh, attend city council meetings or uh, to meet with, you know, planners or, you know, you know the county council, the attorneys um, that may be uh, advising their own county on their own policies. It can also mean, um, you know, just really delving into the details of something like, you know, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, which is a 62-page initiative, and uh, looking at the consequences of various provisions in it, uh, and then also then meeting with clients and explaining the implications of these various regulations and laws uh, for their businesses and uh, how to remain consistent with them and plan for the changes uh, that are that are coming. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's get into that for, for a second here. So I think uh, much of the country would be shocked to find out that there is such a anti-Prop 64 movement in California. Uh, it's kind of consistently in my Facebook feed and around. It, it's, a, it's a force. I guess the first question is, do you have a way to quantify how big that is? And who are these people? Why wouldn't everyone in the marijuana industry want Prop 64 and adult use? Yeah, well, so that's, that's a, a interesting observation. It's something I've seen too. I'd say my Facebook and social media has become somewhat of a, a dumpster fire, if you will. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and, and uh, unfortunately I see sort of echo chambers, which I see in other issues as well, where the different sides sort of have their own sort of rallying around particular talking points and are kind of trying to demonize the other side. Uh, and so unfortunately there's, there's sort of these extreme statements being thrown around. And, and so within the sort of no contingency, obviously we have just staunch prohibitionists, people who, um, you know, think cannabis is, you know, believe the reefer madness and, and, you know, think that legalization would just be a bad policy generally. Uh, but I think more interesting for, for me uh, and more challenging for me uh, is the sort of uh, cons concerns that exist within 
sort of a subset of people who support the idea of legalization generally, uh, but identify uh, particular problems with Prop 64 and some of the decisions it's made. You know, it's, it's a voter measure that's 62 pages. That's far longer than any other state it contains uh, that has legalized or, or done a medical initiative. It really gets into a lot of details. And whenever you do that, you get into those fine details and make really uh, significant decisions, you're going to have winners and losers uh, from those policies. And, and there are a number of things within Prop 64, which in my opinion actually are, are quite problematic uh, and things that we're going to need to work through. Now, you know, some people take that and say, so now let's reject legalization altogether. Uh, others say, you know, this is an important thing to sort of uh, move the dialogue forward, uh, that we need to get legalization on the books, and then we can tweak the issues that exist within it. Uh, and I'd say that sort of the people who have come out completely against it, despite supporting legalization in the abstract, really have decided that some of those provisions in it that they're concerned with are, are so great uh, of a concern to them that they just think we need to wait, you know, a couple of years, have the legislature try and do it, or go to the voters a third time. And you know, that's I think where the people who uh, really are saying, despite the problems, they want, they support it. Um, that's where they differ. They say there's not really, uh, we don't know what it's going to be like in terms of the national climate on this issue uh, in a couple of years, and, and our time is now. So that's what I'd see is the sort of main. Um, sort of debate that's going on within people who generally support uh, cannabis legalization. So I want to get a bit into your concerns with Prop 64, but isn't the answer to the other question that there is great economic agenda here, right? There is great money to be made in prohibition versus coming out of prohibition. Is is that something that you see as it is black and white for you? Uh, you know, you know, I don't, I don't full. I think that you know. So there is a perspective that says that you know, folks who are in the cannabis industry who oppose Prop 64 are just attempting to protect their illegal profits and that they don't care uh, that there's a real human cost to those who get caught in the enforcement of prohibition um, and, and they're fine with it maintaining their profits. I, I think that that characterization, there certainly may be some people that, that that's accurate for. Uh, there are others though who I think have concerns not with just they don't want to com remain completely unregulated or completely illicit, but they have concerns about the regulatory structure of 64 and the degree to which it, um, you know, in, in their view, kind of accelerates the possibility of a consolidated industry. Mm -hmm. So really, I think the, the basis for those concerns derives from um, you know, the contrast with the medical framework. The, the, the state legislature just passed in 2015. The governor signed it into law. It's the first time California's really comprehensively regulated its medical cannabis industry. Before that, it's been just this vague sort of informal economy with some loose legal protections based on how you conduct your business. You know, the state is now transitioning that into a formalized regulated structure. And, and Prop, uh, Prop 64 kind of undoes a couple of the things mm. that the legislature did in the medical rules, in particular limitations on things like vertical integration um, and also the, s the amount of licenses that any so particular- So unpack that for a second, the vertical yeah. integration. Right, so yeah, yeah. so you know, vertical integration is this idea that a business can you know, um, maintain presence and activity throughout all the links of the supply chain. So they produce, uh, they would manufacture and refine after cultivation, uh, then they could distribute it to themselves and then engage in retail. Uh, the medical regulations that passed the state legislature generally took a position that, that, that sort of broke up the ability of a single business to engage in all of those tiers and in fact sort of controversially uh, the, one of the main mechanisms for that was the creation of an independent uh, distributor tier which cannot be interested or engaged in any of the other production or retail segments as well as limitations on just the number of any of the licenses that can be held by any one business. Uh, and so Prop 64 kind of undoes 
both of those provisions and does not limit the number of licenses that are available. It also introduces a license called the Type 5 Cultivation License, um, which doesn't exist in the medical regulations. Um, and I'll just step back and say that Prop 64 largely mirrors the licenses from the medical regulations. They intentionally adapted it uh, yeah. after the, the, the MCRSA passed. Yeah. Um, but it added a Type 5 license, uh, which is an unlimited scale cultivation. The medical, uh, medical rules limited uh, the size of a single cultivation license at one acre. The Type 5 license says you can go from an acre to infinity, theoretically. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Prop 64 does sunrise that clause, so you know it won't that um, that that t license type. So the Type 5 will not be available uh, until 2023 at the earliest. Um, but it is a concern that you know you know there's actually not. Uh, you know, right now California has an overproduction issue. Um, most experts say that there's you know, somewhere around 7,000 acres in production across this state, and that's distributed among you know tens of thousands, uh, potentially as much as 50,000 or more farmers mm -hmm. currently. However, California's consumption market is far smaller than that. So California's consumers, really, you know, the best estimates I've heard can consume the production of about 1,600 or so acres. So, uh, you know, the idea that there needs to be an unlimited scale license for a single entity when there's currently, you know, thousands and thousands of smaller farmers operating at what, in comparison to traditional agriculture, would be considered really micro levels. Mm -hmm. Like, does it really make sense to build a policy that allows for potentially you know, a couple of actors to really capture a huge percentage of the production market when they're really kind of objectively is not a underproduction problem. Now, that's the concern around some of the type. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of that that feeds a little bit into the conspiracy, right? That all of these uh, initiatives, all the new legalization is just in an effort to fuck the little guy right. and squeeze out all the small farmers. Right. Is that going to happen? You know, there's there will be a lot of pressure in transitioning from an informal economy into a formalized economy generally. Regardless, you know, the type five uh, question, you know, is is sort of I guess the most acute or obvious example of a potential big business concern. But just the challenges of being regulated for um, small independent cultivators, um, you know. Things like just ensuring that you have a technical right to the water that you're using. You know, water rights are a really complicated, difficult issue to navigate. Mm -hmm. uh, and so just practices around how cultivation can occur and how you can use an water and how you can irrigate, there's going to have to be some evolution there. And there will certainly be challenges that I think, you know, certain places in the state, it won't be possible to uh, necessarily obtain the water rights that you need. Um, you know, you'll be left with only capturing rainwater. There might not be enough. There's going to be uh, difficulty on those fronts regarding regardless of some of these sort of uh, questions about the scale of the business, it's just going to be a challenge for a lot of operators to come into sort of compliance with these new rules. And, and 64 puts a lot of the burden of the regulation of those things, water quality, and into the normal governing bodies, right? So the wild fish or wild game and fishing for, for water. Uh, is that the right way to do it? Are they qualified to, to regulate cannabis in that way? Yeah, so uh, you're right that basically what um, has been done both by the medical rules and then AUMA kind of mirrors this is to sort of break up the task of regulating the cannabis industry into a number of different departments. So there's really going to be three main licensing departments, Department of Food and Agriculture, uh, which you know obviously governs the production of uh, agricultural production in California yeah. is going to deal with cultivation. Uh, there's going to be a Department of Public Health uh, role in manufacturing. 
and then there's this new bureau that's created specifically for medical cannabis regulation, mm -hmm. uh, and then potentially for uh, marijuana control is what it'll be called under 64, uh, which will deal with retail and distribution and things like that. And so it kind of does silo the licensing um, activity into agencies that already have um, some experience dealing with things that are sort of similar to what they'll deal with in cannabis. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that thus far, uh, the state has already been sort of proceeding on that route under the medical system. Uh, and I, I can say that, you know, at least, you know, we're still relatively early, but it seems to be working pretty well thus far. Mm -hmm. You know, the agencies are all very engaged with learning about the cannabis industry. Uh, I think as much as they're trying to fit the cannabis industry into their normal way of doing business, they're also at the same time attempting to ensure that they understand how the cannabis industry operates and develop regulations that will sort of fit with um, you know, how cannabis is unique as a, as a particular type of product, so. I think it adds serious legitimacy to the issue, right? If, if we're now governing and adding the cannabis to a group with other highly regulated agriculture and everything, I mean, that's the way it has to go, right? I mean, whether they're prepared to handle that now or whether they'll research and learn in five years, we have to adopt it under the same regulatory issues, we, yeah. we just do. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, I'll just add, you know, I think that that was actually a big push in passing the medical regulations was to actually, you know, it, it may seem kind of um, obscure, sort of bureaucratic detail that doesn't seem relevant to many folks, but which agencies have which authority can really shape the character of a, a program of regulation. So for example, uh, winning the Department of Food and Agriculture as the licensing agency for cultivation was really important um, to a number of folks looking at this from the cultivation angle because the Department of Food and Agriculture really in its relationship with the agriculture industry is one of sort of promoting its success uh, and taking you know an attitude that really makes sense for farmers and for cultivators which you know have different considerations than say a different bureau that's more uh, you know inclined to deal with highly technical uh, sort of laboratories or manufacturing and, and so to put it into an agency that already has uh, an ethos and experience dealing with you know agricultural activity made a lot of sense that was not necessarily in earlier proposals uh, for years there was sort of a thought that maybe the alcohol beverage control agency would just take over all of the cannabis regulation yeah. and then you'd have a really uh, potentially different attitude and, and approach. that's what's happened in Washington correct yeah, yeah. that the liquor yeah. control board up there mm -hmm. is is sort of what it, where it got siloed mm -hmm. so you know that's one of the sort of nerdy things that most people I think would not um, particularly concern themselves with what agency did it, but it really matters. Um, That's your someone, job. Yeah, it's my job to sort of look at, you know, <laughs> Okay, so what did it miss? What does 64 miss, or what needs to be altered later on down the line? Yeah, you know, so, you know, I think that there are a couple things that, when you're running an initiative, it's difficult because, you know, Calif uh, the cannabis industry is not your only, you know, is not the only group that you're considering what's optimal uh, for, you know, the industry itself or for cannabis patients themselves. You also have the general public who may have, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot less nuance in their understanding of the details and some concerns that are different than those uh, that are experienced with cannabis. And so um, there are a number of things that, you know, I imagine that the, the campaign sort of decided to sort of be somewhat conservative on uh, in an attempt to try and, you know, avoid some opposition from folks um, you know, sort of outside of cannabis that I think will be somewhat challenging. So uh, an example is that uh, there's a general prohibition on public consumption of cannabis. And so uh, that, that will become an infraction after Prop 64 passes. And so there's some question about what public consumption will mean. Mm -hmm. You know, there is this idea that, th that you can license consumption 
um, you know, areas, uh, you know, actually facilities, but to what extent that that will enable cannabis to be consumed at things like concerts in a lawful yep. way, or you know, you know, we're here in Oakland, you know, it's quite common for folks to you know be able to consume cannabis in the outside area of a bar. Absolutely. It's more yeah. probably the smell of cannabis smoke is more ubiquitous than tobacco smoke in the city, and if that sort of be, uh, falls into a bucket of sort of being an unlawful infraction, we might see sort of the same kind of disparate enforcement where, you know, oh, so we're not going to arrest you for possession, but we can still ticket you for public consumption. consumption. So that's one thing that's going to be challenging to work through. You can understand, though. That's what a big deal, though. It, it is. It's a big deal. I guess uh, as a cynical sort of Bay Area resident, it's hard for me to see them enforcing that. Right. As someone that walks down the street and will smoke a joint and frequently sees uh, other drugs being used on the street uh, in the Bay Area, do you think that's going to be, uh, yes, an issue in policy, certainly. Right. In practice, is that going to happen? Well, you know, I think that the, the real issue that we see in this is I think that, you know, for you or me, it'll probably not change that much. Mm. However, you know, one of the things that we see to this day, you know, Oakland in, in particular since 2004 has had a policy that makes can adult cannabis offenses the least priority enforcement for police. So basically, you know, Oakland couldn't legalize cannabis when the state made it illegal. Cities can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, but it basically, the voters in 2004 said they basically want to do everything that they can short of legalizing it as a city. However, you know, we, we then, one of the things that the voters did it, in passing those rules was require the police report on how they're enforcing cannabis. And uh, so for over a decade, we've been getting data from the Oakland Police Department, and we see uh, tremendously disparate enforcement uh, of of the cannabis laws that remain on the books in terms of you know who's bearing the brunt of it. So you know people of color are about five times more likely uh, to be you know arrested in any given year in, in Oakland for cannabis offenses, even though they use cannabis you know at the same rate or at, at lower rates than than white folks. And so the the concern will just be the application of rules like public consumption. We've gotten some really um, disturbing data out of Colorado, uh, for example, where there is a continued disparate enforcement of sort of some of these things for sort of like pub public consumption, et cetera. And so, you know, I think that, you know, that's, I'm not trying to say this to be, it sounds, you know, thus far I've really talked in sort of a, a critical lens on some of the challenges we'll have with Prop 64, um, but, and, and that is certainly one of them. Uh, but I do think that in general also we shouldn't discount the fact that of the broader changing attitudes. And so even though there may be technical gotcha violations, you know, as we're moving as a society towards saying cannabis should not be stigmatized. The spirit of the law. Yeah, the spirit of yeah. the law. It's legal now. You may see an attitude shift uh, where, you know, you're hopefully not going to see sort of a, a back step in terms of the sort of ability to uh, use cannabis in certain settings. I mean, you know, there's a couple other examples of just things that I you know, think folks need to um, be aware of. For example, Prop 64 does not um, preclude your employer from testing you for cannabis and potentially you know, terminating you if they have an anti-cannabis policy, even if you're a patient. And you know, it's actually been that way for patients for some time since a, a Supreme Court case here in California, the Ross versus Raging Wire case said that just having a medical recommendation does not preclude you from you know, being terminated by your boss um, if they have that policy and Prop 64 does not reverse that. Mm. Um, that's an example, again, like mm. if they had included employment protections, arguably maybe uh, groups like the Chamber of Commerce might have opposed the initiative and they didn't want to do that. It makes it much uh, more complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It d if you're going to create employment rights, you may have more 
opposition groups. Um, but you know, it is something that people should be aware of that it's not necessarily going to be the case that just because we've legalized possession and you know purchasing and, and sale of adult use cannabis that it's necessarily going to um, be possible in all situations to do so without consequence. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's going to be something that I but think. But hopefully, like you said, in the spirit of the law, many employers will not take advantage of this crack in the law, right? And they'll say, well, we're legalizing cannabis here in California, we should get on the right side of history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's gonna be up to all of us to ensure that that, you know, continues to happen. And I think that if we can end up in a place sort of like alcohol where, you know, you can't be drunk on the job, yes. um, but, you know, there's really just generally not any kind of per, like employer concern for what you're doing. Yeah, nobody checks whether you had a mimosa. The, in the, the, morning. the problem yeah. is that cannabis, as as we know, sort of is fat soluble. It can you know be detectable in your system for a month plus, depending on you know your own physiology or and other way things, longer. or even longer. Yeah. I mean, if it's a hair test, something yeah. even longer. And so you know the concern will just be that you know there may be certain contexts where you know employers may still try and enforce those policies and so you know those are those are examples of things that we're going to have to i think work towards and and may be a multi-decade sort of continued evolution you sure. know this prop 64 is not going to be the be all end all uh, of of ending cannabis prohibition and its myriad sort of ways that it's found its way into all sorts of aspects of our lives mm -hmm. um, and so it's just the start and i do think that you know it's a it does represent you know california is the biggest market it's the most populous state, um, and I think that you know we we cannot underestimate the implications as a sort of set of um, sort of domino consequences. Where if California legalizes, suddenly federal prohibition broadly seems all the less tenable. Um, and so you know, well, let's talk about that for a second. I yeah. mean, I think that's a kind of a a broad generalization or perception is that okay? I think in July, California passed France as the sixth largest economy. Right. in the world, which is crazy to think about, that right. one state is bigger than almost all the countries in the world. But I think along those same lines, it is unclear the steps that are taken in between. And that's kind of what I'm curious about if you've thought through this. Like, yes, it's a signal to the rest of the world, and namely the Fed, that, that California is now legalized, right, in AUMA. Right. But kind of do you foresee the steps in between before getting to full legalization in the United States? I mean, how big of a signal is it, I guess, is the question. Yeah, well, you know, there's a number of ways you can look at it. It's culturally a big symbol, you know, how, so California is one of five states that are potentially looking at some form of adult use legalization um, this cycle. Really, there's been this attitude that, you know, states' rights, the idea that states can have different policies, it's a laboratory of democracy mm. is this sort of narrative. That's something that Hillary Clinton will say, for example. She wants the state allow the states to experiment with things. And so, you know, there's a sense in which this election is kind of the first uh, real broad, could be characterized as a broad referendum on what we've seen happen in Colorado and Washington and, you know, you know for a couple years now, Oregon and, and Alaska, but they're just starting to get their adult use programs online. In any case, you know, what California does can be seen as a response that could be spun that way. So, you know, I think that, you know, if you talk to anybody in Colorado or Washington, they'll say, we don't really know definitively what the implication of uh, all these policies we put in place are, here's some evidence, but we're not really sure, we still need more time to know. But it could be perceived nationally as kind of sort of uh, our voters looking at what's happened there and deciding if we want it here. And so I think that that could raise the stakes for the outcome in California, I think is, the, is seen as the most significant, but these other states as well. Uh, and so, you know, that's sort of the symbolic angle of things uh, on a sort of more technical sort of uh, sort of 
public policy perspective, if California legalizes, California has the biggest congressional delega de delegation in Washington, D.C. So, you know, we have the most House uh, members of the House of Representatives. And if they're all representing a legalized state, there will be increasing pressure on sort of marginal issues like banking reform, 280E tax reform, which deals with sort of the ability of cannabis businesses sure. to make deductions. Yeah. Um, your viewers are probably familiar with that. You see right um, off your expenses. A, yeah, yeah. A, a number of these sort of you know, sort of incremental federal policy changes that could uh, help normalize the industry short of federal uh, prohibition ending entirely. Right. Um, and I think that California and these other states moving towards adult use authorization will will most immediately impact those issues of banking, 280, et cetera. But it also builds momentum, you know, towards potential uh, revisitation of federal policy broadly. So now we all know that uh, Schedule One. Uh, designation for cannabis was, was upheld that the DEA basically decided not to reschedule it recently. Uh, they did change one of the sort of research provisions that now will allow theoretically for, for better scientific research going forward, but they maintained the Schedule 1 status. You um, say theoretically, why? Well, well, so the one thing that they did do was basically end the monopoly uh, research policy. Basically, for, for decades, uh, there's only been one legal producer of cannabis for federal research. And because it's Schedule 1, it's very difficult to even get approved to study it. Yep. Uh, but if you do get that rare approval to study the effect of cannabis, it would come from the University of Mississippi. And it's been sort of funny because people have regarded it as ditchweed, really, mm -hmm. for, for mm -hmm. some time. I mean, even their highest potency cannabis is still you know less potent than the average cannabis available in a, in a state with medical or adult use yeah. and so you know there's actually a small number of individuals one who's you know still alive and around here named LV who um, you know received cannabis yeah. uh, from produced by University of Mississippi so what the federal government did do is say that that monopoly policy will end and they could theoretically license a diversity of producers for federal research purposes but this is a big deal I mean short of rescheduling cannabis or descheduling uh, the ability to now not only test, I mean, look, if you're testing cannabis at the University of Mississippi and you're testing swag all the time, the results are going to be inferior as well. Right. I mean, the, the ability to now test a wide range of quality and diversity of cannabis is actually a big step. Yeah, it is. And I yeah. think that it's something that we should celebrate. And honestly, you know, there's, uh, and this gets to your, your question also about, you know, what are the next steps towards the end of federal prohibition? You know, there is a, a robust debate about, you know, how federal cannabis policy could change and if it would even be net positive. So for example, there's a concern, you know, when the, 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 I think the expectation actually before they decided not to reschedule at all was that possibly the most likely outcome was to move it from schedule one to schedule two, mm -hmm. which is, you know, from, from, you know, LSD to cocaine, but, you know, schedule two, um, you know, does have some medical potential. Uh, and so, you know, there, you can have schedule two drugs that can be developed. Um, or have some application. And so, uh, whereas Schedule 1, the sort of position, it's this weird sort of bureaucratic catch-22. It has no potential, no accepted medical value and, you know, high potential for abuse. Therefore, you can't study it to decide if there's more medical value. Right. But if we had gone to 2, I think that that's what some people perceive as, as a latent risk in, in federal policy of what can be characterized as sort of a pharmaceutical takeover where effectively, you know, none of the 25 states with medical cannabis programs currently would meet the regulatory process standards that the federal government would have for Schedule II drugs. And so you would have a situation where, you know, rather than it just being blanket prohibited as Schedule One, that you're, you're prohibiting it uh, because it's, you know, a drug in development that will take, you know, potentially years and years or decades of, of sort of red tape laden pharmaceutical development and, and really is inappropriate for us as a society to deal with this plant as like a, a highly sort of restricted 
pharmaceutical um, product. And that's actually where some of the prohibitionists, um, so Kevin Sabat, uh, smart approaches to marijuana, I, I feel bad even giving him this airtime to, to mention him, but he's sort of the leading sort voice. Of like Voldemort. Yeah. In a way, right? <laughs> yeah. He who shall not be named. You know, he, it's funny, the prohibitionists have recognized that they've seen the writing on the wall. They've recognized that uh, just blanket prohibition is untenable. I actually, I've heard from people who know him that he really, that's what he wants. He mm -hmm. wants to maintain full prohibition, but rhetorically they've had to shift, to, the prohibitionists have had to shift to from, you know, let's just reefer madness to, okay, maybe there's a medical value, but we need to just treat it like a tightly restricted pharmaceutical. Mm. And that's their way of opposing, you know, more um, liberal sort of socially just social justice uh, oriented, broader legalization efforts. Uh, as they say, we need to, okay, maybe there's some medical value. Let's treat it like a medicine only uh, so that it can only come out of CVS or something right, like right, that. Right. And so that's one concern. So actually I think that the outcome of re retaining schedule one, but allowing more research, I think, does position things was actually probably potentially even a better uh, outcome or one with less potential unintended consequences than a rescheduling to two. And it does set us up for what I think many view as the best solution at the federal level, uh, which would be to sort of deschedule it entirely, you know, alcohol and tobacco are not scheduled federally, mm -hmm. and then allow the state frameworks that are developing now to basically continue. And then you could have dry states that decide that they don't want any form of medical or adult use cannabis for some time, you know, into the future. Uh, but, you know, the states that want to proceed with it can proceed with it. Yep. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's ultimately, I think, where, where things I think ideally would end up because of sort of the really uh, groundbreaking policy work that a lot of these states are doing to establish regulatory systems that really by and large from most ways of measuring it are working. Um, so the idea of precipitating a federal change that will flip the game board and you know suddenly you know everything that's been built across these states is now moot, I think that that is a, a latent concern about how federal policy shift could happen. And, um, so, Very you know, interesting, yeah. And, and how about with, within the state? Just to come back to, to California briefly, even if we pass 64 and we have this hooray party and everybody can go buy weed whenever they want if they're 21, these cities and counties are still going to have tremendous authority over what happens. Can you talk about some of the decisions, some of their jurisdiction in, in this whole kind of picture? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, California uh, has across issues a uh, robust tradition of local control. Um, a lot of the Western states in the United States sort of at their foundation and their constitutions and in the way that they sort of came about. Um, you know, really have a lot of authority that's delegated to different cities and counties. I mean, you could even break it down, you know, the Northeast has a lot more uh, centralized state power, but they're sort of smaller geographic units out in, you know, in the West. You know, California is, is enormous geographically. And, you know, imagine before modern technology, like how do you enforce a uniform state policy? There's, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot and that's just a and very, it's very, very diverse it's as very, well. Very as diverse. To other uh, states. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, and, and that's just a very truncated explanation of why we've ended up here. But the case is that, you know, we have a sort of tradition of home rule, which is local control sort of driven policy in a lot of instances in California. And that was something that was part central part of the compromise in the medical regulations that sort of the AUMA sort of uh, ended up basing itself off of. The idea of dual licensing is what the medical system established. You need a local permit first before you can even apply for a state permit. AUMA is slightly different. Um, but effectively, in, in basically almost all situations, you're going to need that local permission before you can even get a state license. And so that 
creates a situation where the 482 cities and 58 counties in California are going to be afforded huge leeway to decide, you know, what types of commercial activity they're going to allow or not. You know, there's currently 18 different licenses under the medical system. A city or county could really pick and choose any of those that they want. You know, okay, we'll have dispensaries, but no production or flipped and we'll say, okay, we're fine having testing labs and maybe some manufacturing here, but we don't want retail sales here. They'll, they'll be able to ch pick and choose um, you know, on, on that basis. So um, you know, the one thing the AUMA does not allow those cities and counties to do is ban um, in-home uh, up to six plant um, cultivation or in an accessory dwelling. Um, I have heard actually the proponents actually last night watched, uh, there was a debate between the yes and no sides, um, a formal uh, forum held, I think it was up in Sacramento. Um, and actually one of the things that the yes on 64 people said, which I think is actually should be revelatory and people need to realize is that they're arguing uh, a couple things that, that 64 does not allow. First of all, that cities could actually require permits for those indoor cultivation efforts. You know, I think that that is arguable whether, uh, you know, how restrictive they could be. Like if you want to do in-home cultivation, if they're going to um, you know, make you go through some multi-thousand dollar permit that makes it infeasible, is that effectively banning it? You know, there's going to be some debate. Or limiting it to very deep pockets. Yeah, basically. exactly. Right. And so there could be sort of issues there. Um, you know, and, and you know, there's a number of other issues, questions about how delivery will function or if it's even allowed under Prop 64. But in any case, that, that gets away from your question about localities. So, you know, there are some that I think will embrace the full panoply of production and retail sales and allow for on-site consumption and even probably push the needle on sort of social events and other things like that, whereas other places will just be banned counties, be dry counties. And, you know, that's something that exists in alcohol in some states. Um, you know, I went to college in, in Georgia, uh, and there they, you know, voted in Sunday alcohol sales while I was there. Like, for all this time, you couldn't buy it on Sunday. You can't buy it after 1145. Some counties, you know, can be dry. Sure. Um, and so that will be the case with, with cannabis. Well, like bluebell laws or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. In, in any case, there's, you know, definitely going to be that local government authority to basically stick their head in the sand and decide they don't want it. They can't ban the flow of cannabis through it. Like, uh, you know, if you have to drive through a banned county as part of a route to deliver, you know, from, from a producer to a retailer, they, they can't ban that activity, but they really can ban uh, most of the sort of the commercial activity within their jurisdiction mm -hmm. if, if they want to. Um, so, yeah, yeah, and that's, that's an issue because, you know, right now under uh, sort of the ramping up for the medical laws, not even talking about Prop 64, uh, and this is a little bit antiquated of a statistic, so I, I would need to re-update it, but at one point um, within the last few months, it was roughly about 70% of the landmass of California was not in a position to allow for commercial cannabis activity. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it really is going to then be, I think what we're seeing, in a number of other states have this similar situation, and in Colorado, the trend now is that I think that some cities are seeing that they're missing out and really opening up towards it. We don't see a lot of places um, oscillating from allowing it to banning it, though there are certain efforts and that will be an ongoing push and pull. Some communities will allow it at first and you know, decide, oh, we, we want to ratchet this back and they'll have that authority to do that if they want. Um, I think most places see that the sky doesn't fall uh, and will warm up to it over time. Um, and so there's actually a mechanism in it also that uh, means that if uh, local government has completely prohibited uh, cannabis activity, that there's certain streams of revenue that they'll be ineligible to obtain from mm -hmm. the tax revenue. And Got so it. that is, you know, a useful uh, mechanism in it, I think. It's actually interesting. One thing that a lot of people don't realize, though, is that 
Prop 64 was filed twice with the state, once in November, and then it was refi refiled as a final version in December. Mm -hmm. And one of the big changes between the two, there are a number of things where they negotiated and, and changed certain provisions, but one of them uh, was that there was a provision in the first filing that said uh, to ban entirely, a city would have to go to voters and mm -hmm. ask the local voters with a measure if they wanted to ban it, as opposed to just having the city council or board of supervisors be able to ban it by vote. And that was actually changed, so it became easier for a locality to ban it, uh, in part, I think, because, you know, well, theoretically, that would have forced hundreds of these local measures that would be costly, and, and there were some other groups like the League of Cities really would have freaked out, I think, yeah. uh, if that was in there. So, yeah. um, you know. Uh, that's an interesting change that I did not know about. Yeah. Um, kind of to sum up 64, I mean, it, there seems to be a tremendous amount of momentum here. Uh, I've seen polls ranging from 55 to a little under 60% yes, I think. A, a country broader, I've seen, you know, just the uh, end of prohibition for cannabis is up to 60% among people or, or something like that. Um, I, I guess the question is sort of like, is the question still economic? Tax revenues, it's going to generate close to a billion, I saw some projection in mm -hmm. California, or is it a moral discussion? Yeah, well, that's a that's a good question. I think it really depends on who you talk to, and I think there are certain factions that it is a moral one. Yeah, I just read an article that um, some religious groups were announcing their opposition, um, you know, to to Prop sixty four. I, you know, I don't even know how representative they are, like how many members they really have. But I, I saw a story about that um, this morning, uh, and so there's some of that moral prohibitionist attitude. You know, from the economic standpoint, I'd say, you know, it's. Certainly, it's pretty clear that we're wasting a lot of money incarcerating people over over this plant. Now, granted, California hasn't really been arresting people for possession. It's been an infraction for a number of years. It was one of the last things Schwarzenegger did when he was governor was remove it from uh, individual possession from a potentially misdemeanor down to an infraction mm -hmm. um, if you're under an ounce. So we're not really incarcerating people for that possession anymore, but the, the state legislative um, forget the name of the formal name of it, but basically the people involved with looking at the budgetary impact of laws at the state level have said we could save potentially tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year in enforcement, um, as well as raise a lot of tax revenue. Now that is actually a concern though, the tax revenue, um, you know, it's pretty burdensome. I mean, it's a 15% excise tax on the value of the final product plus a $9.25 per ounce tax on the flour. And then there's a leaf tax that's like $2 and something. I'm, I'm forgetting the specific number because um, there's been a number of proposals otherwise, uh, excuse that. But, and then there's also uh, a sales, sales tax that you, know, you pay on other items, plus whatever the local governments want to heap onto mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And so there is, you know, that, that does let them score it as a potentially very high you know, uh, budget impact revenue raiser up, up to a billion dollars is what they've said uh, is potentially possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the flip side of that is if the tax burden's too high, uh, you really create perverse incentives for uh, activity and purchasing to transition into the legal market from the illicit market. Uh, and so there is, you know, I think the economic debate is actually one that um, really actually it, it characterizes some of the disagreement within the cannabis community more. And I'd say that outside of the cannabis community, the opposition tends to be more in that moral, oh, cannabis is just bad for, do we really want to have cannabis access, you know, as a people, is cannabis good for humans is the sort of moralistic argument. Mm -hmm. um, and the economic one is, you know, it's important. I don't think, and I think one problem I've seen in the, the whole deliberation uh, at, that we've had as a community and as an industry is that there's been, again, that sort of bifurcation, the sort of tribalism of, you know, the yes people saying anybody who has is expressing concerns wants people incarcerated, and the no people saying this is a Monsanto takeover act. Mm -hmm. and, and in reality, I think 
you know, there needs to be an acknowledgement, especially for some of the yes people. It's going to win. It seems like it's going to win. We're in, you know, the lowest polls have it and still, you know, ahead of the no vote. Uh, you know, 55 was the uh, percentage that I saw on a recent poll that yep. seems pretty solid on it. Mm -hmm. Some are even higher. Uh, it looks like it's going to pass. But we need to also acknowledge that this does represent a really fundamental shift in the cannabis economy that exists in California and has existed for 20 years. And it is going to have consequences in there. While Prop 64 does do certain things to preserve the idea of medical patients and things like that, it also is a radical shift towards a formalization of this sort of economic structure. And that will have, you know, disruption and not necessarily, you know, in a good and bad way, you know, some of the current activity needs to be disrupted. Environmentally irresponsible um, activity is, is not good and, and we need to create tools to address that. Yep. But there's also going to be people who are making livelihoods in, an inform in, in the informal economy of, of the status quo who are not going to be able to uh, continue to compete or continue to exist because of sort of the red tape that will come with regulating it. And so, you know, I think we need to acknowledge that as a consequence uh, the, of, this, of this process, realize why people have anxiety around that and not try and demonize them, but understand that concern and build policy tools that try and limit that impact of excluding the incorporate them, yeah, incorporate yeah. or create as much incentive and, and pathway because we are talking about tens of thousands of small businesses. Mm -hmm. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of li uh, uh, people's livelihoods being provided by the current cannabis economy, and it it, it could be e economically devastating to some communities to lose that revenue. And so I think the, the smartest communities are getting out ahead of that and finding policies that sort of ramp people up into the regulated system. And I think that that's honestly, from my perspective, one of the ways we can judge our success in this transition is really how many of these businesses or people who have been forever characterized as criminals do we turn into business owners mm -hmm. and you know ideally i think you know we can we've seen broadly in the economy uh, a trend over the last few decades really going back to the 80s is what you know a lot of the research points to of this accelerating inequality of wealth uh, and, and concerns that are just challenging our society more broadly and ideally uh, cannabis offers an opportunity because it is small and independently owned due to federal prohibition that, that it offers sort of a different model of economics uh, and hopefully we can find ways to preserve the value of that. Well, still at the same time, I, I, I think we, you know, I don't want to go too extreme in that perspective because I do think there are changes that do need to happen to how we do business now. And yeah. I do think that, you know, we should, and I hope my, what I'm articulating now is not uh, characterized as just trying to protect the sort of profit margins of the illicit market, but rather trying to build a regulatory structure that protects the idea of small independent ownership. You know, it's something that a lot of politicians speak to, you know. I think a, a simple way to put it is I don't want to wake up, I'm a, a lifelong California, I was born in Southern California, I don't want to wake up in 10 or 15 years and we have a lot of shit weed everywhere. Right? I don't want it to be Coors Light everywhere. I think that's one of the major concerns of all this legalization and big pharma and corporate, corporatizing the industry is that we wind up with inferior cannabis. Right, inferior cannabis and, and, and uh, less uh, just production relationship yes. to it. And, yeah. and, and uh, you know, that's, you know, I come to this work in, you know, really in part due to sort of seeing the injustice of prohibition. It's what sort of got me interested in it personally when I first interviewed with you know Rob Rach, the attorney I work for, um, sort of I, I was you know still an undergraduate and that was a lot of my focus was this policy is harming us as as a society uh, and wanting to move past that. And I think that to the extent that as we transition into a legalized economy, if we can preserve 
some of the um, value and, and the sort of economic sustenance that this informal economy has provided to certain communities, that they're not just totally excluded and we have sort of, you know, a, a complete hollowing out. I mean, we've seen, what, and, and this is me riffing on this a little bit, but I think part of what we see with this phenomenon with Trump and a lot of the support in the sort of Midwest uh, part of the country is the hollowing out of the sort of industrial sector mm. uh, that we saw with you know NAFTA and a number of these other globalization moves that there were losers. You mean the worst deals ever signed in the history of yeah, deals? Yeah, so 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 I don't, I don't I think that you know I'm not a Trump supporter. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just to be clear, but I think that in reality, like those, like like there were uh, severe economic traumas that occurred to a lot of communities as a, a result of the way that the economic structures that we created to facilitate the trade and commerce in various industries that may not have worked out and may have you know have left whole communities behind the middle class is shrinking rapidly and and those are policies uh, th those are trajectories as a society that i think you know time and time again you know if you look historically there's i don't know there's this guy jared diamond wrote this book collapse and and one of the things that he saw in in civilizations that collapse is that there ends up being a increasing uh schism between sort of the the most wealthy and and everybody else and and it's those extreme moments that destabilize you know civilizations yeah. and I don't want to be too grandiose here in my, my explanation but I do think that you know that's something that we saw with the sentiments around the Occupy movement and other things like that is people concerned about those um, schisms and we see the sort of mirror of the Occupy sort of left version but then sort of with the Trump contingent um, you know, and, and people supporting him, it's, it's people affected by the same policies, but who conceive of it in different ways and, and see it sort of in, in a sort of more right wing light. But in any case, our society is becoming polarized and, and there are a lot of people who are, the economy isn't serving. And I think that ideally we don't just see the process of legalizing cannabis as just bringing it into the just broader business as usual economy um, because we do, because it's, it's not like we're creating a new industry. There is an industry here. The industry here has problems. Regulation offers an opportunity to address those problems, but we also should try and find ways to preserve some of the valuable things about that are, that are somewhat unique to, to cannabis, I think. Extremely well said. Uh, you're one of the most intelligent people I've met <laughs> on this topic. Honestly, so well informed. Um, I want to get you out of here on a couple fun questions. Okay. I love to connect sort of the really important work that you do during the day and that lots of people do, founders and investors in the cannabis industry and sort of their own personal consumption okay. uh, of the plant, you know? Um, so the extent that you're willing to talk about it here, I mean, what what do you like to smoke? You like flowers, concentrates, indica, sativa? Um, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I'd say that to the extent that, that, I, that I do consume, I preferred more sativa uh, leaning sort of, um, genetics uh, and you know I'm kind of a flower guy got it yeah got it good stuff well Alex it's been highly informative even from someone that interviews cannabis people all the time <laughs> I Happy thank to. you very much for having us in your office here doing it big over here man and cross your fingers for November 8th and uh, thanks again man it was a great talk yeah thanks absolutely. for having us yeah thanks for and, coming and uh, thanks for watching guys we will see you next time